You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome all to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and this discussion on global governance of the internet and social media. Uh, my name is uh, Ludwig Norman. I'm with the Europe program here at the Institute and I will uh, moderate this discussion event. So this is a uh, continuation of an event we organized uh, in March, which focused on uh, the governance of the technical aspects of the internet. Uh, and it was entitled, Who Controls the Global Internet? And this included guests from uh, international institutions and, and places like the uh, internet uh, corporations of assigned names and numbers and these types of institutions. So if you're interested, I would urge you to go to the our uh, website and check that out. It was uh, it's uh, uh, it was recorded and it's available there for for anyone who is interested in these types of issues. And also uh, make sure to keep your eyes open for uh, uh, upcoming events on these types of issues. Okay, so today we turn to uh, another aspect of the internet uh, and focus on social media. And we have a terrific panel here today that will help us. Uh, discuss these issues uh, uh, in a more intelligent way. Okay, so before we get to, uh, before I get to uh, present our uh, panel, I'll just give you some context on what sort of motivated uh, uh, today's event. So, in recent years, uh, most of us have been made aware of the profound social and political impact of information technologies and social media. A social and political life, news consumption, and political debate moves to the web and to social media platforms, we are faced with new challenges. One of these challenges is the complex problem of disinformation. This includes the proliferation of completely or partially <coughs> fabricated news items, uh, automated networks of fabricated social media accounts and the use of bots, uh, organized trolling, uh, and the exploitation of the algorithms that are at the basis of the business models of social media giants like Facebook and Twitter. So in light of the 2016 US uh, uh, electoral campaigns, Brexit, and more recently, the Cambridge Analytica scandal where tens of millions of Facebook users had their information collected and used in sort of illicit ways, governments and international organizations have started to act. We're seeing a growing list of states and organizations that seek to regulate these problems in various ways. So for example, we have the Network Enforcement Act in Germany, which forces social media platform to, to take away illicit or illegal content. But we also have a sort of carbon copy of that law in a regime like Russia. And we also have similar laws underway or already enforced in several European countries as well as in the US and elsewhere. So regulatory actions are being taken and we see sort of a, you can discern the emergence of a, 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 a starting of a sort of a, a, a governance framework uh, uh, to deal with these issues. So the problem though that some critics have pointed out is that these types of regulations also may po pose a threat to political debate, freedom of speech, and they also might help legitimize actions by authoritarian or semi-authoritarian states wanting to squeeze free media 
and restrict the free flow of information. So obviously, these are complex problems, how we should deal with them. So I'm especially happy that we have such a wonderful set of panelists that will help us untangle these complex issues and, and talk to, to these and related issues. So firstly, I would like to uh, introduce Rene de Resta. So Rene is a co-founder of the trade technology platform Haven, and she has studied how disinformation and conspiracy theories spread on social media platforms, and also how the use of automation and bots reinforce these dynamics. Our next panelist, Marcin de Kaminski, is Program Director for Human Rights Defenders at Risk at the Swedish NGO Civil Rights Defenders. And Marcin has a background in research on the internet, online social and political communities, and has extensive experience in this field in various professional capacities. Finally, I'm happy to welcome Christian Christensen. Uh, Christian is a professor of journalism at the Department of Media Studies at Stockholm University. He earned his PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, and his research has focused on the intersection of journalism, politics, technology, and social media. He has published extensively in these fields in both academic and journalistic outlets. So with that, I invite our panelists to kick off the discussion uh, with their presentations. And uh, after these presentations, we will open up uh, for a, a Q&A session and an open debate. So uh, I'll give you uh, the floor, Renee, for 10 minutes. Thank you. Hi, it's an honor to be here. Um, came in from San Francisco. So I work in the tech industry in SF. I have a startup called New Knowledge um, that looks at building detection and mitigation platforms for manipulated narratives. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about what that means and how that works. And the other thing I do is I uh, help advise Congress and um, had advised the Obama administration, the State Department, and others uh, helping governments, legislators, and policymakers understand the implications of fake news uh, on kind of a myriad of topics, but also uh, how they themselves should potentially be thinking about what the regulatory frameworks are going to look like as this goes forward. And that included doing some advising on the tech hearing, so I'm happy to to, to talk about that if, if that's of interest. I think that one of the things, um, just to, to start, is we were having conversations before uh, before coming in here, um, is is you know what what to talk about since this is such a big problem. Um, so I'm going to speak a little bit about what I've seen over the last um, almost four years now working in the space. Um, I got my start looking at a policy situation in California, which was that we had introduced legislation to eliminate vaccine opt-outs. In California, you used to be able to sign a form and then not vaccinate your child and then send them to school anyway. And um, after the Disneyland measles outbreak, uh, people in California decided that enough was enough. And our state legislature, so the way that it works in the U.S. is, you know, California, what California does is considered often legislatively significant because it is such a, uh, a large and, and powerful state. And so for us to introduce this legislation to eliminate opt-outs became the subject of national attention. As a result... Um, what we started to see was that although the law was polling at 85% positive in California, the social media conversation was almost 100% negative. So it was a profound uh, difference in what the narrative was on social media versus public opinion as, as people were responding to polls. This is not to say polls are infallible, but to see that profound of a difference 
uh, was significant and interesting. So myself uh, and another data scientist began to do some work into exploring the narrative on Twitter because it was the most public place that we could see it. Um, because of the way Twitter is arranged, the conversation is very public. And so we started paying attention to a hashtag, the hashtag around the bill, which was hashtag SB277. And so we started analyzing the way that conversations were taking place um, in that hashtag, and we started looking at the ways that the participants in the hashtag, as they would lose votes, because in the American legislative process, uh, our bill was what was called triple referred, which meant it had to get through three committees in the California Senate and three committees in the California House. And so this provided us with a couple months to observe the evolving conversation on social media. And what we started to see was um, accounts that had been deeply anti-vaccine for a very long time, all of a sudden stopped being traditionally, as we might call it, anti-vaccine. They stopped with the traditional narratives around vaccines cause autism. And all of a sudden they became passionate defenders of parental rights, passionate libertarians. Um, and so it was a very interesting evolution done and completely, you know, absolutely correlated with the timing of the votes that they were losing. And the reasons that, um, that they were losing the votes was that the legislators weren't buying the anti-science argument so this was an example, as we watched this evolve, of a conversation in which people, they, there was automation in the conversation, there was coordinated messaging, there was what has now come to be called manufactured consensus, where a very, very small group of people um, operate in a very automated and coordinated fashion in a hashtag to present the, to create the illusion that they are the majority opinion, which in many cases on social networks they actually are uh, because there is no corresponding group of people who spend all day long sitting on Twitter tweeting about how vaccines do not cause autism. Um, so this leads to this asymmetry of passion, which unfortunately results in a, in, a, um, in, in a representation where legislators can be unfortunately easily fooled into thinking that this is a majority opinion, when in reality, very few of these accounts were actually California citizens to begin with, so they you know, candidly had no right to weigh in on the law or, or, or no right to, to impact the law. So this was an example of one of the first instances as we began to try to map out the way that this was happening, we also started looking at how it fed into Facebook, how it fed into other social platforms, uh, and how this sort of systemic presence of the movement, including on YouTube, um, were kind of all coming together to create this perception, this false perception that this group was a lot bigger than it was. Um, that work, you know, I, I wrote about it uh, for Wired. We published some network analyses. We, we did some message mapping. We got the law passed. You know, that was a, a great success. But what was more important was that it was our engagement with the senators, really explaining to them how this narrative was being manipulated, that provided them with kind of the confidence to go ahead and vote much more as their districts were actually polling, as opposed to what the angry people screaming at them on social media were saying. Um, I subsequently began working. Um, advising on a, on a couple of, of different issues because we saw the same tactics being replicated in 2015 um, by violent extremist groups such as ISIS, which were effectively able to leverage uh, the same ability to disseminate a message on social platforms and to cross-coordinate and to recruit in to basically build a brand uh, to create a virtual caliphate was, was their term for it. Um, in, in very much the same way, and that was because they had the building blocks and the system that enabled them to operate uh, in this coordinated fashion to grow this audience and recruit people. And this was about the time that very interesting issues of governance began to come up because the question was, who is ultimately responsible here? Uh, the government, the U.S. government, of course, had and governments around the world 
uh, had a vested interest in in dealing with this problem. Uh, largely, I think one of the reasons it 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 um, was kind of centered in the U.S. was um, the kind of outward adversarial you know situation that was happening, the geopolitical situation, but also because the tech platforms are in California. Uh, so this is you know the relationship um, was such that we would have these convenings with the tech platforms where we would ask them to do more to deal with it. But there was this deep concern that one man's terrorist was another man's freedom fighter. Uh, and if they took efforts, you know, if they made efforts to stamp out ISIS on their platform, uh, what would they be asked to do with regard to any other dissident group or, uh, you know, thing that perhaps while the world opinion was united on ISIS would not necessarily be united um, if it was an authoritarian government, perhaps asking to uh, to silence, um, you know, something that was more plausibly could claim to be a freedom fighter. So the result of this was unfortunately that the platforms really stepped back and tried to do very little uh, because they were indemnified. So I don't know how much we'll get into in terms of issues of specific governance in the U.S., but there is a law, the Communications Decency Act, um, CDA Section 230 is is, uh, is what it's called in the media, how it's, it's, it's the name of it. Um, so CDA 230 indemnified the platforms from content that they host, which means that they are a tech platform. They're serving as a host. They are not a media company because they did not create the content. They are simply acting as um, a repository or a you know a channel by which people can engage with the content. And so this has led to the some very interesting conversations uh, in the in the U.S. today as the hearings have um, have gone forward and as uh, the one piece of legislation that has managed to come through the pipeline is a carve out in the CDA 230, uh, eliminating protections for sex trafficking, which has resulted in some, this is the sort of cutting edge of uh, regulatory, you know, attempts to contain the problem within the U.S. The unfortunate side effect of taking down, um, you know, of, of creating this um, removal of the indemnification guarantee for all content, as they have removed that guarantee for sex trafficking, is that the platforms don't want to be responsible for deciding what is sex trafficking versus what is a voluntary posting of one's own uh, ad as a sex worker. And so they have responded by summarily um, removing all content potentially related to that. So, so we do see in very, you know, a real instance here of an of a attempt to regulate around topical content that has resulted in a sort of, you know, as the sex workers are saying, a silencing of their voices uh, on these social platforms as they have previously posted ads now can no longer do so. So I only want to speak for one more minute. I think one thing that, that we try to look at is the, to what extent can we as third-party researchers enable platforms to do a better job of moderation, operating under the idea that moderation is not censorship and that rather than relying on regulatory solutions that take a topical approach, uh, which seems to be the wrong approach, can we potentially provide them with more insights into what's happening on the platform by doing um, kind of a three-factor check, which is um, we look at the content, so we do look at the narrative. We try to look at the voice, so is the account that is posting it authentic or is it a bot account or is it an account that was created a week ago and has only ever talked about this one issue. So we try to gauge whether this is real grassroots voice or uh, a, a bot or a troll or a semi-automated account. Uh, and then the third piece of that is we look at the dissemination pattern. 
So we're looking at to what extent are there indications that the dissemination of a narrative uh, or the behavior of the voice of the actor um, has signatures of being a manipulative um, persona or group. And so in that regard, we'll look at the extent to which they use automation to spread the message, how quickly the message appears on social platforms, does it appear to be happening all at once. Um, so this is a sort of three-factor framework that we look at that we have visibility into as outside researchers that the platforms don't necessarily have the same visibility into because they can really only um, drill down into what's happening on their platform. So I guess to sum up what my, you know, my, uh, my work and, and thoughts on this are really that we have wanted self-regulatory models um, traditionally in the tech industry. We are recognizing that that is probably not the way of governance in the future, nor should it be. Uh, but as we've begun to think about regulation, things like simple topical regulation have been shown quite immediately to have um, some very negative consequences. So what are the frameworks that... Uh, that we can put into place to to deal with and mitigate this problem going forward, um, taking into account that it's a very multifaceted, complex issue. Thank you so much, uh, Renee. And uh, we'll open for our second speaker, Marcin. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Uh, so my name is Marcin Kaminski. I am the program director of Civil Rights Defenders, uh, of Human Rights Defenders at Risk program at Civil Rights Defenders. And just to give some, some context to, to why I'm here. So I started working with uh, online media in the late, late 90s, where it still was called alternative media. Uh, that this is be before alternative in our uh, wordings uh, was... Uh, I mean, when it still meant uh, pro promoting social movements and rights-based organizations rather than the, what, what is today known as the alt-right and what, what is an alternative to mainstream media today. Uh, I have also been part of uh, an, a number of different uh, uh, internet-related projects. And to kind of uh, coincide with this discussion that you mentioned on the asymmetry of of the internet, is, uh, one of the most prominent things that I was part of was a small activist group that uh, uh, pushed for uh, internet freedom back in, in uh, the early 2000s. Uh, and we were 10 or 15 people working with uh, file sharing issues. Uh, and the most noteworthy uh, ad addition to the history that we produced was something that still is alive today and known as the Pirate Bay. So that was kind of uh, 10 people actually kind of driving something and, and portraying ourselves as a popular movement, even though we're only a few people. So that's kind of quite interesting. Uh, and then I was recruited to, to internet research at, at Lund University. And this was when, when I started thinking about what, what this actually was about. And, and what, what me and my colleagues looked into was the, the extensive use of pers personal information for political reasons, uh, what also is known as doxing, uh, meaning that uh, collecting personal data and using it for political campaigning uh, and in a way that's very efficient uh, and also makes it possible for just a few people to create uh, a political camp uh, to create political campaigns and also political impact on the basis of being tech savvy rather than having a real political narrative and and this is something that we talked a, lo a lot of uh, specifically concerning what was then known as the anonymous movements uh, but also here in Sweden that tactic has been very frequently uh, used by right wing group groups for outing and uh, uh, 
portraying people as something that fits their the, the right-wing narrative rather than, than the actual happenings. Uh, and, and this was kind of where, where I started thinking about this in a more structured way. Uh, and, and I were also recruited then to, to CEDA, the, the Swedish International Development Corporation Agency, to be able to, to help them with uh, assuming uh, or uh, leveraging uh, an internet freedom-based agenda in development cooperation. And it, this was just kind of when, when the Arab, Arab Spring was at, it, at its peak, and just when I entered office, um, the Snowden reports came. So the, the very internet-positive approach to, to um, information and communications technologies quite rapidly changed in, into something that was more or less based on uh, focusing on challenges, focusing on the negative side of, of personal data and information in, uh, on the internet, and also trying to mitigate the possible damages of, uh, of that data usage and, and sometimes also leakage. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that is something that I've been taking with me to, to my current position, where Civil Rights Defenders, as a small Swedish NGO, uh, supports 200 sm even smaller uh, local organizations in 18 countries, working for human rights in, in, in different aspects. And one of the crucial parts that my program is, is focusing on is the safety and security for human rights defenders, specifically the, the most targeted human rights defenders at risk in our countries. And, and something that we have been seeing quite a lot is actually the, the usage of both the, the fake news narrative or, uh, uh, and, or the orchestrated narratives uh, in the local press, uh, specifically concerning uh, elections in countries where the, the mainstream media is not as free as it is here, uh, and how the, the online media and discussions that are going on uh, in the online spaces actually are the ones forming uh, how the outcomes of the elections uh, look like. And, and, this makes uh, the groups that we work with even more targeted when it comes to uh, orchestrated or um, planned and, and campaigns in, in social media concerning the, the current events. Uh, something that we have been discussing quite a lot with our partners is the digital footprint that they leave on, on the internet, which I think is clearly connected to the online campaigns that they're also being targeted with. And, and this is quite obviously uh, seen when uh, entering uh, an internet internet platform, not as a user, but rather as a um, as a seller, as a seller of a product. So if if you try to enter a platform and uh, portraying yourself being a, a buyer of uh, adver adverts at the platform, you're being able to choose the demographics that you want to to uh, uh, to push your ads to in a very detailed manner. So from the most obvious demographics as uh, where you live or wh where, your, uh, where your audience live and what kind of uh, um, occupation your audience has, it's all also possible to, to narrow that down to very personal demographics as if you're, if you're married or not, if you're planning to have a kid or not, what kind of food you eat or what kind of drives a car you drive. And that is basically uh, showing how the data is being collected today and also used for uh, commercial reasons and sometimes possibly also political reasons. And, and this, is, this is something that we and our partner organizations are looking into in a very, I mean, we're very worried about this specifically since a lot of the people that we work with do not have the access to a lot of different <coughs> information streams that are very much based in the platform where they are active. And they have also been using the platforms to push their, uh, their agenda and, and the work that they are doing quite uh, extensively and also successfully 
meaning that they see the platforms as uh, as the way forward and the way to to work and suddenly they are being faced with uh, challenges that they had not expected and i think that this is kind of the the tricky part where uh, we ne actually need to, to understand how to better understand the, the usage of personal data in a way that's helpful for for our partners and for people in, in need but also to understand how that could be affected and possibly then uh, challenged um, so, so yeah so something that, that uh, we work quite a lot with is to make our partners and ourselves understand how much data is being collected and how uh, to better handle that kind of data uh, and th this is something that we work with a lot and, and something that we obviously need to, to continue with and this is, I mean, this connects also to, to the introduction uh, by Ludwig that actually uh, authoritarian states learn quite a lot uh, from more democratic states on how to use the internet as a governance platform. And they are also uh, learning from corporate entities on how to deal with inf uh, spreading information to selected target audiences. Uh, so this is really something that we need to take into consideration and understand the logics of. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Marcin. And, uh... Go ahead, Christian. Thank you. Um, well, I guess my my role here is maybe to think a little bit more about the relationship between technology and journalism. And uh, there was recently a uh, high-level expert group created in the European Union on fake news that recently published a list of recommendations of sort of policy document. And within that document, they made a statement, I think, that I, I've argued myself and I agree with, which is my, my distaste for the, for the term fake news and the way in which it's been utilized. And you know, disinformation is actually a much better way to talk about it. And the reason why fake news is a problematic term, as was pointed out in this document, as many people have pointed out, is that it's often abused as a way of attacking journalism you don't like, particularly on social media. And um, biased journalism, badly edited journalism, badly sourced journalism is not by definition fake news. Uh, fake news in this definition that the European Union was using this particular group was, is specifically disinformation, false news put out specifically to change people's minds on given issues. And so as a starting point, it's worth thinking about the relationship here between technology and journalism is the way in which we talk about this relationship outside of academia and outside of maybe tech circles or policy circles within the general population. And I would also say as a sort of a precursor, actually Marcin was right on point there when he was talking about the sort of post-Snowden era, the pre-Snowden era, and actually around the time of the, uh, the so-called Arab Spring, there was a lot of techno-utopianism going on. And there was a lot of techno-utopianism going on in, from the late 2000s until that period around 10, 11, 12, 13 when we started having this discussion. And, uh, and very little discussion about the, the, the lack of neutrality on the part of large platforms in, tar in terms of private data use and things like that. Um, and this is not... Uh, this is not an accusation against anybody, but this was also in, in terms of the media's relationship to these platforms as well. It's very celebratory. There's very little critical discussion about these things. And then when the information came out, uh, we began to have these very sort of lengthy and intense discussions about privacy, which was very important. And, and we're seeing now the broader consequences of this. So I would just say that from a, from a, from a journalistic perspective, it's worth also talking about the way in which journalism, A, has discussed technology, and the second one is the way in which journalism has a symbiotic relationship with these platforms. Uh, we're sort of, in a way, sometimes discussing Facebook and Twitter as sort of separated from these large mainstream, if I'm, I'm just use these old terms, sort of legacy media like newspapers and television, but they're actually 
have a very integral symbiotic relationship with each other. And so when we talk about transparency on the part of platforms, we also need to talk about transparency on the part of large media companies and the way in which they work with, for example, Facebook, and which a lot of companies have not been that willing to discuss, actually. If you go back you know, with the test with instant articles not that long ago, for example, it was a big deal when it was announced, and we've heard very little since then. And when you talk to companies about their use, they're sort of reticent to talk about it. So that's one thing I just wanted to throw out there is sort of publicly the way in which we talk about technology. A second one is... There was a, an interesting preliminary study that came out of Harvard University last year from, from Bankler and a number of other uh, scholars that looked at this question of the media ecosystem. And of course, uh, their critique was that when we talk about things like filter bubbles and echo chambers, we tend to think of, you know, on the left and on the right, there are two circles. And within these circles, there are people that live in these separate worlds. And the two never sort of meet each other. And what Bankler was getting at was the point that in this, what he considered and what they considered to be a largely tech, sort of techno-deterministic understanding about the way disinformation works is, you would expect in a perfect world of, of algorithms, you would expect to see equal bubbles on both sides. The left and the right would have their little spheres, and but what you saw was a disproportionate power on the right to influence the power of the mainstream media discourse about what was discussed. And we saw this during the U.S. election in 2016, where in that study, they looked at, for example how much of Clinton's scandals were covered versus Trump's and how much of Clinton's policy suggestions were suggested were discussed in the mainstream media versus Clinton's. And what you saw was there was an extremely, a much larger proportion of Clinton's scandals covered than Trump's and Trump's policy, particularly in relation to immigration, was discussed much more broadly than Clinton's. And the mistake there was thinking that a, an article that criticizes Trump's, Trump's policy was somehow mitigates the fact that it was discussed. But the point was, it became part of the discourse. In other words, the, the oxygen was sucked out by Trump's policy discussions and by these sort of accusations against Clinton. And what the Bankler study said was, we need to not only look at algorithms. We don't just have to look at technology. We have to look at a couple of other things. One thing we need to look at is, why do we share material on social media? What is our sort of motivation for doing so? With whom do we share? And the notion, for example, that click, the click farms that produce some of this disinformation, very often they are not ideologically aligned. These are, or, or, these are places where you make money by producing material that people click on. And by clicking on it, even if you don't like the material, you're, you're adding to that industry. So the idea that I'm sending you this article isn't this awful, you're contributing to that industry that you're critiquing from the content, right? And the second thing is, how does journalism work? And in other words, is there a particular motivation or is there a particular tendency on the, on the, on the, on the, in the way in which mainstream media work to absorb the discourses that come from the right but not the less disproportionately, I mean? So, for example, discussions about immigration. If we think about Brexit, for example, and we think about the sort of discussions about Cambridge Analytica and the possible influences of that organization on the Brexit vote, you know, are mainstream British newspapers more likely to take up a question of immigration because it is something that has been traditionally discussed and you sort of see a self-perpetuating argument that it's been an issue before and it's going to be an issue now versus maybe other issues regarding Brexit, for example, economic questions that were not taken up. And so it was very important in the study for them in any way, and I think this is an extremely important conclusion, to think about in this discussion of technology and in this discussion of regulation to think about the relationship between technologies and journalism in this way and to think that journalistic organizations contribute to these factors 
And sometimes we think of these things as questions of feeds. Like on my, on my Facebook feed, the algorithm is basically steering me towards this article. And we've sort of cut off and separated the news content from the way in which the news gets to you. But at the same time, the question is also about content. Like what news is actually being produced in mainstream news outlets in Europe and the United States? And the obvious example is, for example, you know, that, that Mercer, uh, one of the co-founders of Breitbart, is one of the co-founders of Cambridge Analytica, right? I mean, this is, this is a person who's a heavy donor uh, to conservative groups in the United States. And the relation, and now we have a currently going on right now, there's a, in, in the UK Parliament, there's currently a hearing going on from a former Cambridge Analytica worker who's talking about that work. And the, the way in which I think uh, we have discussed technology has been far too, I would say, neutral in a sense. It's been a number of years now, six, seven years that we've post Snowden. But even with Snowden, I would say, uh, the level of the public discourse about this question has been fairly low. Uh, only now are we seeing these kinds of issues. And we saw basically the, the rather feeble questions from members of the U.S. Congress to, to Mark Zuckerberg, and many of them are embarrassing, uh, didn't bode well for the way in which the United States is going to address the question of regulation. And to sort of finish on that point, of course, we have very different regulatory worlds here in Sweden and the United States, the way in which the relationship between state and, uh, and media companies are seen. Uh, I just had a class this morning of journalism students, and we were talking about this, and some of the very different reactions you get depending on what kind of regulation you're talking about. User privacy, uh, transparency in how algorithms are used, that's, people are very gung-ho about that. They think that's great. Content regulation, people get very nervous. And so you're talking about, for example, in this EU high-level group on fake news, one of their recommendations is to make an effort to, and they're being very diplomatic in the way they put it, to lift up high-quality journalism. Then the alarm bells go off immediately. Who is going to make the decision about what is high-quality journalism? When Sweden talks about maybe implementing regulation or France or Germany during election times, what is the benchmark for what is disinformation and what is just bad journalism? Because the two things are different. And that is the alarm bell that goes off. So I think amongst the public, there's a general consensus that this question of privacy and integrity is extremely important. But rightly so, I would say, the question of what constitutes bad content or disinformation is a massive question. And I think the answer so far has been very vague. And also, as a very final, final point, uh, why elections? Why are elections held up as the benchmark for democratic process? And I think, if, for example, in the French regulation, they're talking specifically about times of election. But it raises the question about the way in which we think about democracy in general. Like, you know, should this kind of disinformation program, should these kind of policies around election time, should we not expand these to all 365 days a year? In other words, why do we, why do we cut off elections as some kind of special point within democracy? Because the argument can be made that the groundwork was laid many years before national elections in terms of disinformation campaigns. So focusing on elections is actually maybe to miss the point that some of these things are actually much longer, longer-term games that uh, we have forgotten about. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for these uh, uh, truly uh, uh, fascinating insights in what is obviously a sort of very multifaceted and, 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 and complex set of problems. So I just want to throw a couple of questions out there before we uh, open the discussion, uh, open the floor for, 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 for questions. Uh, and what, what, what strikes me here is that there is a complex intersection of sort of social and technological mechanisms that, that feed these 
developments on how sort of information is disseminated and 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 uh, and uh, 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 and consumed, right? So so how should we, from a sort of a uh, from trying to think about how we should sort of regulate these issues or, or try to approach social media platforms to, to get them to deal with these issues in a, in a, in a useful way. So how, how should we, is it, is, it the, is it the algorithms that we should be worried about or is it, is it the, the sort of a deeper set of, 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 of human drives as, as we heard in, in, in Christian's uh, uh, talk on, on sort of what drives journalism and what drives a good story, right? So I was wondering if you, if you uh, wanted to sort of uh, reflect on those issues and this also leads into to sort of another question on, on the possible sort of, uh, and I think you all touched on these uh, issues on the sort of possible unforeseen consequences of 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 of, uh, of initiating specific uh, types of, of of regulations that that have, I mean, it's difficult to to sort of find the the, the balance of, of of getting a, uh, away from the type of content that that we might find harmful and, and and the type of content that 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 we would sort of like to see and who is we and and, and what is good content and those kinds of issues. So of course this is a Again, a very multifaceted and, and complex set of issues. But what? How should we sort of approach this from a, from a from a, a sort of a regulatory uh, uh, point of view? And and at which level uh, should those types of regulations uh, take? Where should those regulations take place? Is it self-regulation by these social media platforms, or we should states or or international organizations? Uh, at, try to deal with these issues. So uh, I'm aware of these. this was a, a, a long set of, of, of different uh, but interconnected questions. So I'll just urge you to pick whatever you find is, is interesting or relevant and perhaps say something. And also feel free to, to bounce off what, whatever the, the other speakers have said. So just open up to you perhaps, Renee. Sure. So on the Regulations front, I can I can speak primarily to the U.S. Um, that's where most of my my knowledge is. You know, where we are looking at GDPR and thinking about uh, to what extent on the privacy front the U.S. would um, be interested in or able to uh, you know have the platforms uh, imp implement a kind of American uh, version of that. Um, it, I, as as Christian mentioned, um, is regulation kind of on the in the pipeline right now. Content, as I was trying to allude to with the discussion of the sex workers and, and SESTA-FOSTA, has not really been something that very many people are excited about. Um, privacy is, is one area of regulation, um, largely because of the concern about Cambridge Analytica. Uh, algorithms, and, and I would actually like to, I'm going to touch on algorithms separately in a second, uh, but the other ones that we look at in the U.S. are antitrust. Uh, and that's something that is unique to the idea that the platforms have grown quite large and quite powerful. Um, traditionally, the, the U.S. has had more of an appetite for going after what it sees as kind of, you know, um, using anti-monopoly uh, legislation to uh, re, you know, give consumers back some power. You know, we think a lot about four-factor, um, you know, four forces acting on a person would be the sort of laws, norms, markets, and architecture. And we're in a position now where there, the market really can't uh, act because as, as Senator Graham, you know, there were many silly questions during the hearings, um, unfortunately, but if you want to see a good one, 
uh, senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, actually did a fantastic job. Um, and his question was about, you know, Mr. Zuckerberg, if I am not on Facebook, where do I go? Do you see yourself as a monopoly? And, you know, Mark's answer to that was no. Um, and Senator Graham's response was, well, you know, where, where do I go then? What, what else is there? And the thing that's so interesting about that is um, the platforms are all attention brokers. And this is where there's the, in, the, the interesting, the reason that they are so powerful is that it's where algorithms intersect with human biases and human proclivities. And that is the area that, you know, that I think bridges um, how Christian sees this and how I see this uh, in terms of um, the algorithms are designed to keep you on the platform, to keep you engaged, because the platforms are not competitive on a features um level, right? Twitter is very different than Facebook is very different than YouTube. You, you go to them for different things, but ultimately you have a finite amount of time. And when the platforms make their money by serving you ads, what they're effectively doing is trying to monopolize your attention. So these are attention brokers. They're not selling your data on which, you know, American senators for some reason couldn't wrap their heads around. Um, what they're selling is, is, is you and your attention specifically. And so the algorithms um, are, are designed to keep people on the platform for as long as possible, which means they're designed to show you things you want to see, things that make you feel good. doesn't matter if it's true or not. doesn't matter if, if, the, if the content is authentic. doesn't matter if it's polarizing. The only thing that matters is that curatorial surfaces, that's what we call the uh, algorithms like trending and recommendation and search, right, are kind of the three areas where the platform is is making its own decision about what you want to see, ranking things in a particular way, and pushing you particular content. And uh, I feel like I've gone on long enough, but that's where I see this interesting intersection when we talk about, is it regulation? Really, I think there's actually some low-hanging fruit there with regard to thinking about, can we reframe these algorithms to be, you know, to behave more, uh, potentially the word is ethically, that's not exactly right. I haven't quite figured out what the word is yet, but um, to be thinking about impact rather than just attention. I would just th throw in there that, I mean, one of the things maybe that's not discussed that much amongst people who don't read these things or talk about them in the industry or in academia is the thing you raised earlier, which is like, is Facebook a media company? And I think that's bypassed a lot of people in the general public. Like, what, what, you know, what are we saying when we say that? Well, the difference between being just a platform and a media company is immense in terms of regulation. And Zuckerberg, for, for people who don't know this, has been resistant to calling it a media company by saying things, for example, we don't produce content, we just provide a platform where you find content. But then you get questions like, well, Facebook, have, for example, is giving money to the New York Times to produce video content. Does that mean that they are now in the production business? They're interviewing people at the Oscars with the Facebook logo on the thing. Are they not producing content? They're actually making deci editorial decisions, if you want to put it that way, about what to put on their site. So it, it, you get into this very sort of fine rhetorical argument about what constitutes a media company versus what constitutes a platform. And I think that's been kind of lost, I think, in a lot. Of, and that was one of the things that really should have been discussed more, maybe, at the, at the hearings with Zuckerberg, was that conversation. Explain to me why you are not in depth. I mean, he did address it, but it's um, it's a it's a question I think that um, that for a lot of people, I think, like I said, in terms of popular discussions, I don't know if you agree, but it seems to bypass many people about why that's such an important distinction, and it has to do, I think, with a lot of ways, also in way in which we've talked about regulation. I keep talking about the way in which we popularly discuss things, but that regulatory distinction between platform and media company is huge, but rarely discussed in the discussion of Facebook. I, I can only agree. I, I think that the, one of the issues with governance here is that a lot of platforms are very re reluctant and understandably yeah. uh, towards regulation of their content or 
by external uh, governance bodies at least and i think that's that's understandable uh, but but you can still see the the problem here that uh, a, a small quite small us entity is uh, larger than most of the countries of the world and still kind of do not want to take any kind of responsibility for for their actions and i think that's something that uh, could be provoking a lot of people here in this room or in Sweden, but it's even more uh, crucial for people living in countries where they don't have any options to, to, to publicize themselves or to also to, to get their information. Uh, so, so I think that really is a normative challenge for, for a lot of the people in, in other countries that are, that, that are more different to, from the US than Sweden is uh, when, when it comes to kind of understanding the, the logics behind what is possible to, to publish and not publish, depublish from, from Facebook, for instance. Uh, but, but I think the governance issues are also interesting from a, uh, from a governmental point, uh, since a lot of uh, law legislators and also law enforcement agencies have been quite active on, on understanding how to use the platforms to, to, uh, to streamline the public dis discussions. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, in, in Kenya, and now it's, it's illegal to publish uh, information on, on internet platforms that could possibly uh, promote violence, whatever that means. That means that you can't really report from, from big accidents or, or attacks by terrorists or, or information that could possibly provoke someone in your potential audience uh, when it comes to kind of the output that you get from, from the news that, that you publish. And this is something that obviously kind of shows also the difficulties between allowing platforms to self-regulate and, and uh, govern, governments to, to regulate the platforms and, and the content on the platforms. Thank you all. Okay, so let's open f up the floor for, uh, for questions and comments. And uh, when you uh, pose your question, so please wait for the mic because we are uh, recording this for the UE pod and please present yourselves. Cheers. Uh, my name is Ruben Dieleman. Uh, I'm a representative of the Dutch Embassy in Stockholm. And um, something that has not been talked about by you in particular, but what I wondered, started wondering about was um, to battle dis disinformation uh, rather than to focus on regulating the platforms. Would it not be maybe good to focus on how to make people less susceptible to disinformation through media literacy courses. Well, we just had this discussion backstage. <laughs> um, there's an interesting flip on this media literacy question. And that has been, I mean, that's very often discussed, like people's ability to, for example, spot fake news, uh, to understand how journalism works. That's also part of this. And also understand how algorithms work. I mean, people are very, very uninformed about how these Facebook actually works in practice forget about how their advertising system works and how people buy ads on Facebook, which is you know complex for most people. But uh, we had this discussion, and one of the criticisms against uh, media literacy is that the old way of thinking about media literacy in terms of understanding and ways in which production works and camera angles has been that media literacy, according to someone like Dana Boyd, who works in the United States, has been that it actually promotes a skepticism of all media that actually ironically contributes to disinformation. Because then what you can say is, that's fake news. I'm being critical of this source. I understand how media works. So she's saying that by, by pushing media literacy hard for so many years, the irony is we've actually created a situation where we have these sort of super savvy media users who trust nothing. And that has actually led to the situation we're in. 
So I think Boyd's point is we need to sort of, I think, maybe step away from media literacy is the answer. And I guess she's talking about moving back to the producers, but you have a position. Yeah, my, my interest, and in, um, and I've seen uh, Dana, she gave a great keynote on this recently at South by Southwest, which is an American tech festival, SXXW, SXSW, yes, um, EDU. And I would highly recommend her keynote. I, I imagine it's on YouTube. Uh, you should definitely check it out. Um, I think that there's also the the issue of um, something that came up. I was I was chatting with a media professor at, at one of the UC schools recently, and I don't remember the attribution for this quote, unfortunately. But it was basically like the only thing that lets me, you know, the, that lets me get through the day is the idea that I can trust people. Right? It's paraphrased, um, which is that my assumption when I talk to you is that you're acting in reasonably good faith, and that we're going to have an honest conversation, and that you are not actively trying to manipulate me. And it, and the mental cost, right, of, of going through life assuming that everyone is trying to manipulate you or screw you or lie to you um, is 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 an incredible kind of cognitive tax. And so if you were to then port that to an online platform, one of the things that I've seen recently uh, over the last, since, since November 2016, ironically, there used to be an under-awareness of bots, which was why they were so effective for so long. But now you see, if you go, if you click into Donald Trump's tweets and you read the responses under it, it's like, you know, everyone is accusing everyone of being bots, right? And I can't tell you how often this comes up where I just, you know, you just kind of shake your head and think like the, the erosion of trust between people, the assumption that the people you are talking to are fake, uh, you know, it's extended beyond like just the stories. It's, it's the, the criticism and the concern about, about the people. So this erosion of trust has moved down to very much an individual level, which is deeply problematic. I see the platforms, I see this as like a least cost avoider problem, right? Which is like, who is best equipped to bear the, um, the, you know, kind of overhead of, of fixing things. And I go back to the tech platforms actually each time, uh, because this is where if, if they were, you know, no one is asking them to be arbiters of truth. We're asking them to be arbiters of information integrity. And that's where that framework of content voice and, uh, dissemination pattern comes into play. We're not asking them to evaluate the truthfulness of the narrative. Um, we're asking them to evaluate whether it's authentic, whether it's a, you know, a real narrative that is spreading for a, real reason whether I agree with it or not is secondary and an irrelevant question. It's simply, um, can you be the arbiter of integrity? Hi, my name is Prechi Kemp and I'm here on behalf of International IDEA, Democracy Institute. So you can guess where my question is going. Um, I was wondering if what would happen if you change the title of today's talk instead of global governance and say democratic governance of internet to social media? Um, and what would be the difference in that world um, between regulations developed by democratic states or actors versus those developed by authoritarian regimes? And if you could indicate if that, what the difference would be and perhaps how norms and values come in. Thanks. Maybe. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, but, but I think this is one of the challenges that, that actually we're talking about global platforms and global institutions today, which are not only service providers, but also institutions. But they're not, we're not able to control or govern them uh, with global processes. And I think that's one of the challenges that we need to think more about and, and also address. And I mean, your question kind of puts the, the spotlight on the really tricky thing that this is not about democratic institutions. It's about corporate entities that have corporate corporate interests, but have democratic implications, mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of twists it a bit. And and I think 
I mean, I don't have answers to a question. I just think it's a good question uh, that also highlights the, the importance of having this question uh, without kind of rushing into any solutions. Uh, because that is something that I see as a, as a really big problem, both on an individual level and on a, gov a governance level, that we actually see issues, see problems, and we r rush into solutions without understanding the issues before, before we discuss the solutions. And we need to understand that the internet and the platform specifically are very, it's, it's a new phenomenon. And 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 the governance is something that moves slowly. So we need to understand how to kind of balance it before before it causes new problems that we need to take care of. But I mean, that question is. I mean, think about Turkey is a very good example with Twitter. I mean, when Twitter went over to recognizing national legislation in terms of speech, uh, Turkey became the number one takedown state in terms of request to take down material. So, but then you had that sort of fundamental discussion: Should global users be subject to U.S. law? and U.S. regulation, or should we respect local laws or domestic laws in terms of speech, like, for example, in Germany on Nazi speech? I mean, you know, you had a sort of long-lasting discussion which wound up being one essentially between this question of, you know, is U.S. law preferable to the laws in repressive states? But then, of course, you get absorbed into that if you're not from, if you're from a European country, you get absorbed into that group also. And you saw a very good, that, and it's a very good example, Twitter, actually, what happened. Very, very specific countries utilize their national laws to shut down users and to shut down content very quickly. And it's not that many. It's only three or four countries that have been extremely active, and Turkey is one of them. Hi. Uh, a question from me again uh, to Mr. Christensen this time. Um, so at some point, you mentioned that uh, the discussion about technology should be less neutral, mm. uh, more biased, I suppose. <laughs> um, but a, a, a very often heard cliche is then that, for instance, I think Greg Kurzweil said this, that technology itself is neutral mm. and that what people do with it is ideology or something like yeah. that. How do you retort that? I don't believe that. I mean, I, I think, you know, by, by the way in which you make something says something about the way you think the person is going to use it, and you make things specifically to be used in a certain way. Even keyboards, the size of the keyboard is constructed based on a certain kind of idea of way in which the human body, and whose human body are you talking about, the language you use. So, I, I mean, I think absolutely that technologies are social constructs. I mean, software is socially constructed. I mean, these algorithms are not made by robots on Mars. I mean, these are written by human <coughs> beings for a specific purpose. And I think the same thing about technology that I understand the argument about the <coughs> way in which you use technology, but I mean, certain technologies are made for specific reasons and for specific purposes. And the way in which you think about that purpose is itself a form of, if you want to use the word bias. So when I said it's, it's discussed neutrally, I meant that exactly that, that the technology is seen as de facto neutral and it's only given meaning by the user. And I would say that that's absolutely not the case. And it says something about the way in which we think about society, whether it's an automobile, whether it's a computer, whether it's a washing machine, that technology can be used in different ways, but it's made for a specific person. So I, I'm not a believer in that. Hi, uh, my name is Matthias Vervengt. I work for this branch of uh, Institutional Shareholder Services. Uh, so my question is maybe more financial. Uh, do you think we are looking at another tech bubble, thinking also of regulating algorithms and break Facebook's monopoly, specifically when it comes to their ability to add uh, very personalized ads feeds 
if we were to regulate algorithms that break one of our business models off, and would that then to its interest from investors and a possible tech bubble? And my second question is extremist content. I've seen a story quite recently on, on Facebook and Myanmar. Um, so I just wanted to hear your opinion where uh, tech companies ability lies when provides due diligence. Also, where we can put that threshold, whether there is any regulation in place that defines the threshold when content, hate speech, racism and discrimination, and so on. I'd say on the regulation, algorithmic, algorith algorithmic regulation, um, that's much more of a, um, that's that's much less seriously being discussed at the moment. There's some ideas about algorithmic auditing, potentially an oversight body for such a thing, but that is um, very, very early conversations in the U.S. My understanding is that there's actually more progression towards that. I used to work on Wall Street, and I was a high-frequency trader, and so we had, um, you know, there, there were a number of interesting regulation parallels for your for your question here. Um, first of all, when high frequency trading came to Wall Street, that was when, right, right when I started in 2004, um, the SEC already existed. So there was a government oversight body in the U.S. Then there was FINRA, which is, uh, I, I forget the ac what the acronym stands for, but it's basically a self-regulatory body. Um, broker dealers are participants and you get your license, your license to trade by FINRA as, as a result of you had to go through anti-money laundering training and so on and so forth. So you learn all these things. Uh, I was licensed under FINRA. Um, FINRA also, then the, the third kind of, um, regulatory entity on wall street is actually the exchanges themselves in the sense that the exchange can decide what is going to be allowed on the exchange. Uh, and so when we had these interesting things like flashing of quotes and what was called quote stuffing, which was basically spamming, uh, to prevent other people's algorithms from working properly, then dropping out of the market and, uh, taking a trade. Um, these were the sorts of things that were considered highly manipulative. They impacted, negatively impacted the integrity of, of the financial markets, which meant that because integrity is absolutely critical to the functioning of a financial market, um, kind of all of the levels of, uh, of people who had the power to have oversight stepped in and did something. Um, so I think that there, you know, there's sort of an interesting parallel. I don't think we're quite there yet on social platforms. I don't think, you know, there have been talk about whether there's a tech bubble for years. Actually, investors really are more concerned about the opposite, which is that um, entrenched monopolistic platforms stifle innovation in the opposite direction, mm. uh, which is to say that nobody wants to fund a new social network right now, <laughs> right? So I was a venture capitalist also <laughs> in my like weird kind of career progression. Um, I was a VC for three years before starting a company, and um, we didn't want to invest in platform in companies, sorry, in startups that built apps on Facebook. That was absolutely something that we never did. We never, never, never backed anything that said, and then we're going to build this on Facebook. Because that was a great way to say, like, if you build it on Facebook, Facebook decides what you have access to. And when Facebook changes its rules, you potentially are out of business. Zynga is the best example of this, right? Farmville. Uh, Facebook deciding that uh, that apps and games on its platform that that had like addictive behavior types were actually um, something it it didn't want on its platform and and Facebook was what that change actually really kind of killed Zynga. News organizations talk about this all the time, right? Going to Facebook looking for particular engagement models, getting them, and then Facebook changes the algorithm as it, it does, you know, with some with not infrequently. 
um, that of course has negative implications for the business. So actually the idea that um, Facebook would potentially be regulated is, is, is being welcomed in some investment circles uh, because they believe that it would actually spur new innovation uh, in tech. And this was what we saw with, I think, Microsoft is kind of the canonical example um, you know, of that, the Microsoft-Google battles from the olden days. I'll leave the extremist question to somebody else. <laughs> Take another question, or do you want to? Thank you. Uh, my name is Hans Korell. I'm a former Swedish judge and government legal advisor, and I was a legal counsel of the United Nations for 10 years. And then I'm now presently member of the Council of the American Bar Association, the international section. So I'm following these questions with great interest. Thank you for very, very interesting presentations. I would like to caution here. I mean, I view this in the perspective, for example, when I uh, worked with the Minister of Justice on publication in newspapers. Here in Sweden, we have a system where we have a responsible editor. And whatever is published in the newspaper, ultimately the editor will be responsible for that. And this means that the editor has to review what is published. In this new system, this doesn't work. Everybody can publish things on the group. If you then want to regulate this, you have to have a system where somebody can be held responsible, ultimately criminally responsible, for what they utter here. And here I, I see a great problem. And how can you manage to do this? And you mentioned, for example, uh, Turkey now, where we in the International Bar Association have problems with what is happening there. How can you then prevent that if a platform in country A is being, shall we say, visited by the police and they start making an investigation, they move the platform to a banana republic and then they can't get at it again. How can you find a system where you can effectively regulate this and not allow people just to disappear and then put the platform somewhere else and the misuse of these platforms uh, are, are uh, continuing? And I mean, and something to think about what would have happened if Adolf Hitler in his days had had a system like this at his disposal. So it's a rather scary perspective, but I admire the work you do. And, and when you participate in the discussions in the future, think of these elements here, that you have to have a system that is efficient, that you can actually can hold people responsible for what they do, in particular if they commit crimes on the web. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean that was not really a question, but a comment. And I, I think, but I think that that comment also relates very well to the question posed on the extremist content. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a linkage which is interesting to, to kind of uh, to uh, to discuss. And I, uh, from what I from what I see in, in my profession is that a lot of the the people that we work with, organizations that we work with, are part of what usually is called the vulnerable populations of different different countries and regions and contexts. And relating to the extremist content question and also the, the issue of, of Facebook and other platforms in Myanmar and Burma and other uh, countries, that that's really kind of, that puts, also puts the, the, the spotlight on a very important question that a lot of the po vulnerable populations are very dependent on the platforms today to actually organize, to promote themselves, to argue for their causes, but they have no, <coughs> no power over the platforms that they're using, meaning that they're basically slaves under the platforms, uh, even though all the platforms talk about uh, not uh, limiting speech but allowing counter speech for instance that's kind of the facebook mantra when it comes to uh, to complicated issues uh, and and that is something that 
that's really troubling because only people with resources can allow themselves to enter discussions that are kind of focusing on counter speech because it takes so much time to counter all the bad speech that's out there. And also since the platforms are are once again private entities that could move their operations to countries where legislation is not really able to to to, to force them to be transparent enough about their, their operations. This kind of puts also vulnerable or makes vulnerable vulnerable populations even more vulnerable because suddenly they have have all the activities and all their their um, their investments personal investments and uh, not in terms of money but in terms of information on on platforms that they have no access to at all okay uh, so uh, thank you for for your presentations and your your uh, uh, help in, in uh, or your your assistance in, in helping us think more coherently on these issues and I want to thank all of you for coming and uh, please join me in thanking the uh, panelists uh, for their uh, uh, presentations today. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.